This episode is brought to you by hrvcourse.com. If you're new to heart rate variability or you just want to take your use of it to the next level, there are now online courses designed to help you do exactly that. Hundreds of people from NFL coaches to doctors to athletes and health seekers are already taking advantage of the in-depth course material. It's all online, go at your own pace, and the material focuses about half on the science and mechanisms and half on the data and real-world application of HRV. The courses are also platform-independent, meaning the content applies to you no matter which HRV app or hardware you use. Continuing education credits are available as well. And last, make sure to get your 10% discount for being a listener of this podcast by using coupon code ELITEPODCAST at checkout. To take your use of HRV to the next level, head on over to hrvcourse.com. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today joining us is Dr. Mike Ruscio. Dr. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And hey, since since we uh, met years ago and, and had a chance to uh, share some drinks and some stories, uh, I just realized I think that's the first time I've called you Dr. Mike to your face. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but hey, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you joining us here. I know that you've got, we were just talking before the show, you've got a lot of things going on. Um, the past couple of years that we've known each other, I think we've both kind of grown in many ways. And uh, just for folks listening, Dr. Mike has uh, authored a book called Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and uh, and has a lot of other work out there as well for free on the internet. Uh, and Mike has made kind of a, a, a name for himself looking into uh, the gut, gut health situation from several different angles. I'm going to uh, let him teach us more about that throughout this episode, and we're going to talk thyroid and things like that. But uh, what I kind of wanted to start with, because I thought it was interesting, is that, Mike, you have a background in alternative and functional medicine, and uh, but you also kind of have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with that uh, scene as well. Um, but before we kind of d- dig into that, why, why functional medicine? What kind of drew you to that field? Sure. The, the long story short is when I was in, in college, I thought I wanted to go into conventional medicine. And what ended up happening was I essentially started feeling terribly, wasn't sure why, went to see three conventional providers. I I figured, you know, this is what doctors do. This is what I'm going to be doing. Someone's sick. You as a doctor figure out what the problem is. You fix the problem and everything's fine. What ended up happening was no doctor knew what was wrong until I went to an alternative doctor who practiced functional medicine and he diagnosed me with a parasite, which I thought was crazy, but it ended up actually being the cause verified via the gold standard testing. And treating that parasite was really the intestinal parasite was really the only thing that allowed me to feel better. Um, and, And so that really kind of opened my eyes to how profound the gut is. And what the difference is between conventional and alternative 
and, and kind of uh, integrative medicine. And it's not to say one is bad or good, but I think the things that appealed to me more were people who wanted to be healthy and were willing to do some work to be healthy. And I think you see much more of that in integrative and alternative medicine, whereas in, in conventional medicine, you know, if you're going all the way to the hospital model, oftentimes you're seeing the end result of perhaps years of neglect or or an emergency situation. Uh, but it was a different kind of animal, and I, and I, you know, I don't think one is better than the other. And ideally, we want to have both. But for me, I wanted to see people who were not going to be drinking soda and eating terribly, and then we're just managing their diabetes. I wanted to see people who really wanted to go above and beyond, figure out what was causing their problems and, and work in, I don't want to say a preventative model, but a model that would require more than just pill popping and would try to treat someone holistically with everything foundationally from diet and lifestyle all the way up through potentially medications, but really trying to fix things as much as we can and not necessarily try to manage things with a more drug and, and surgical based model. Right. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of drew me to to have interaction with that community so much is that it's kind of like you're not skipping the bottom rungs of the ladder, so to speak. I mean, right. you know, uh, if you're trying to get to a certain point and you're like, well, okay, um, all uh, NBA players can work out six hours a day. So I'm just going to start working out six hours a day um, as opposed to like, oh, I kind of want to increase my fitness, but I've been sitting on the couch for the last two years. Maybe I should start with something that's a little bit more uh, base level, like look at my nutrition and try to just go for a walk periodically. Um, and you got to you gotta have both ends of the spectrum if you want to get to be that high level athlete or if you're trying to tackle a health situation and you, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to take this medicine, but like you said, just still only consume soda and chips for everything, um, you're kind of putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Exactly. Okay. So um, I think we have a lot of agreeance on on that part of the path, but uh, I kind of mentioned a love-hate relationship and, uh, you know, what what is that like? I mean, uh, I've seen a lot of your work, so I'm familiar with it. I don't know if all the listeners are, but I think uh, they can appreciate that there's some um, some sketchiness to the alternative medicine scene, but there's also a lot of power to it. Uh, maybe you could break that down a little for us. Yeah, and, and you know, there's there's sketchiness. I've learned to every scene. There's sketchiness to conventional medicine, alternative medicine, uh, accounting. Right? <laughs> um, you know, <clears throat> every every field. I'm I'm fairly confident you're going to see people who are extremely overzealous and dogmatic and not objective. And those people are going to be counterbalanced by people who are a bit more objective. And, and I first saw this when I was doing my undergraduate, which was in exercise science and, and pre-med. I got really wrapped up into this world of exercise, exercise physiology, exercise rehab. And I got very much swept into what I consider to be an extremely overzealous model of exercise prescription. And it took me maybe one or two years to figure out that some of the quote unquote gurus I was learning from were making things unnecessarily complicated and 
they weren't objective and they just were, were kind of falling deeper and deeper into their own confirmation biased and they were attracting people who reinforced that. And there was just this runaway model of excess and hyperbole. And fortunately, I was able to recognize that. But the same thing happened when I got into alternative medicine. You know, it, it was the same scenario just now in health and medicine rather than being in health and fitness, where you would see these extreme positions. You know, everyone needs to be gluten free or, you know, any trace of mercury is is toxic and deadly and and you know there's there's degrees of truth to these statements but oftentimes they're they're conflated to you know using gluten and celiac as an example that you'll see a, a gluten-free guru tell you a thousand and one ways that gluten is bad for you but he's citing all the literature in celiac disease mm. and mm-hmm. so that's like saying alcohol is bad because of what happens to alcoholics Right. And that's just not really a fair conflation. Um, and so this is where the love-hate relationship comes in. And, the, and these, aren't, these aren't unfounded criticisms that I'm making. You know, the one that has been most bothersome to me lately is the overdiagnosis of hypothyroidism. And this is something that I've been talking about in our clinician's newsletter for probably about a year, a little under a year now. And what I've been noticing in the clinic at first, it was just one or two cases where the person didn't really seem to be hypothyroid. And so just to kind of be extra cautious, I said, can you send me the labs from when you were diagnosed and then put on this medication, levothyroxine or Synthroid or whatever it is? And when I checked their lab work, I remember the first time I said, okay, so you're sure this is the lab that the doctor used to diagnose you hypothyroid and put you on medication? Yeah, I'm sure. And clearly, by any objective measure, this person was not hypothyroid. And I started to realize this trend or notice this trend where this actually happens, I don't want to say fairly commonly, but it happens way more than it should, which should be almost never, right? Almost never should you be diagnosed with a condition when you don't have it. Um, And what really kind of corroborated my finding was a study published in Greece recently looking at um, I think there was about 200 patients and, and maybe slightly off in, in the sample size, but, but a decent sample size. And this was a group of patients who had kind of an ambiguous hypothyroid diagnosis. When they went back and rechecked, 60, 60% of the patients were not actually hypothyroid. Oh, and, wow. and so what's happening is as thinking in, in thyroid care is becoming more progressive, that can be good. And there, there's some good there that we can come to in, in a moment if you want. But what's, what ends up happening, unfortunately, is because there might be a small subset of people who are subclinical hypothyroid and may respond to thyroid medication, that's then conflated to say, well, anyone who has any symptom that could be attributed to hypothyroidism should be on medication. And, and some practitioners get, get so overzealous in, in their desire to find the thyroid problem, quote unquote, that they're misdiagnosing people with a thyroid condition. And now you're even seeing groups of researchers document this. So that's that's one example of where my love-hate comes from. Yes, we want to be progressive. We want to be open-minded. We want to be open to new treatments that may not have like five meta-analyses to back up the approach. 
But we also want to be cautious not to be gullible and not to make decisions that seem to be based on little to no evidence or just fly in the face of what we actually know to be true. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I kind of, I feel like, you know, I'm not as definitely not as steeped in the thyroid scene, but I, I definitely see that in the alternative health arena in general, um, these trends kind of come and go where, for example, thyroid, maybe there's a ton of interest in it right now, because like you said, we should be maybe paying more attention to it. But then it becomes this kind of excitement and hype that builds up where it's like, oh, your, your fatigue is hard to explain. It's probably your thyroid or your uh, brain fog is hard to explain. It's probably thyroid, uh, something like that. And then exactly. you get a little bit of a confirmation bias loop because for many people, it might actually be that, but then for many people, it might not. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think one of the things that compounds this is when you're a, a practitioner who isn't really open-minded and doesn't listen to your patients, the patient that that approach does not work for, they won't come back. And and so what will end up happening is only the people coming back are the people this approach is working for. And you really have to be an attentive, I think, open-minded, supportive, and empathetic clinician for a patient who has a bad experience from one of your treatments to have enough confidence in you to come back and say, hey, that treatment didn't work. And, and part of that is just the I guess the, the, I don't want to say the art of medicine, but perhaps it's having good bedside manner and building confidence and trust in your patients so that when something doesn't work, they come back to you. Um, and so that helps you to see where the holes in a model may be. But unfortunately, I think for for many, um, or maybe many is, is too high of a claim to use, but for, for some practitioners, it's clearly I, I would submit that the more overzealous a practitioner is, the less likely they are to have kind of that empathy that would inspire confidence in a patient to return to them if the treatment didn't work. And sometimes, you know, if, if, if the thing is your stick is gluten-free and you go gluten-free and you're not feeling any better, then the clinician may say, well, you've got to go gluten-free harder. You've got to get your toothpaste and your shampoos. And, and I think if patients have a sense of that, they don't, they don't return. Um, now they don't return back to that doctor's office and give the doctor a chance to see the errors in, in that kind of gluten-free centric or thyroid centric model that they might be using. And, and one of the things that I do think that underlies the confusion in thyroid is overlooking the gut. And we just published in our clinician's news, excuse me, newsletter, a case study where a patient saw, you know, a fairly fairly notable guru in thyroid who even wrote a book about hypothyroidism and was incorrectly diagnosed with hypothyroid and suffered for six to eight months trying different medications with not feeling well and sometimes even having flares of symptoms because if you give someone a hormone that they don't need, sometimes it'll make them feel worse, shock. Um, and and after about three months in, in our office, in, in looking into her gut health, she's seen all of her symptoms remedy except for one. Um, and, and I want to be careful just, just to say, I, I'm, I'm not saying this in a disparaging way, but you know, there's a, a ton of good in the field, but this is where kind of my love-hate comes from, which is sometimes, unfortunately, patients are subjected to suboptimal care, which is a, a byproduct of a clinician who is kind of drinking their own Kool-Aid and has a little bit of a you know, overzealous model of practice. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I mentioned confirmation bias, but what you've described is also survivorship bias, which um, is it's a thing in many industries, business, investing and things like that, where uh, only the winners or only the things that work kind of stick around to tell you about it. Um, and that's that's huge. I never thought of it from a clinic or a clinician patient point of view. So I, I encourage people to, to Google survivorship bias and uh, be aware if it's happening to you. But uh, so, you know, how do you do you kind of in that relationship with your patient, do you establish criteria before doing an intervention to say like, OK, um, we're going to do this and here's what we're targeting. And if we don't see this, then we know it's not working? Or do you kind of just go, yeah, in, in a clinical relationship, you also have the uh, benefit of, a, of actually just a human relationship. So do you just like pay attention to their posture and their cues and how they're talking about their health and things? Or what is it? How does that look for you? Yeah, I, I would say both. Um, <clears throat> and, and it depends on the patient. Some patients are more logic-based and, and they enjoy hearing more so the proposal, the mechanism, and the rationale behind it. Other people, that is just confusing to them, and they want things kept really high level with a simple summary that they can grasp. Um, and they may they may also need more emotional support. So it, it depends on the person. I always have a, a, a algorithm in my mind that I'm working people through. It's just how much of that I explain to them or how much of that I just summarize really succinctly. Depends on the person and you know, kind of where they're at and what their, um, you know, what, what their mental uh, disposition is. And sometimes the way we know if we've hit an outcome is based upon symptoms and subjective measures. I would say the majority of the time, um, <clears throat> and this is because a lot of my work is in gut and there's not a lot of great biomarkers for gut health. Even the tests that we do know a lot about like a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, the SIBO breath test, there's a lot of controversy in terms of how useful that is for even guiding treatment. Perhaps you can use it to initially establish if SIBO is something that's on the chessboard or not. But then, you know, how impactful is repeat serial testing on the course of care? It's pretty controversial. So oftentimes we'll use symptoms. For thyroid, that's a bit more clear cut. TSH and T4 can get you pretty far. And sometimes a look at free T3 can also be helpful. Um, so it, it kind of depends on what the animal is you're, you're grappling with. But I would say more often than not, we're using subjective measures predominantly and then leaving the lab testing and the objective measures as something to kind of confirm that, okay, now that the symptoms are gone, do the labs look the way we'd like them to look? Right. And yeah, I mean, folks may already kind of get this impression, but um, the world that we live in today is that people who come to see you, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, have oftentimes kind of complicated cases. It's not just like, oh, yeah, it's clear. Just take this pill or, oh, just stop doing this and all will be good. Is that? Yeah, there, there's definitely complicated cases. And then, you know, it's funny, sometimes the cases aren't complicated in solution. It's just having the knowledge and the experience to kind of pierce through all of the confusion into what the underlying cause may be. And just as one example, we also 
published this in our clinician's newsletter. This very educated psychotherapist came in and, you know, at my office, it's oftentimes maybe a six month way to be seen. And, and so sometimes what that does is it, it leads people to think, well, you know, if I've waited this long, this better be really good. You know, it kind of puts <laughs> right. a, a pressure, a pressure on me, which is fine. Um, but you know, when she came in, she had a binder of labs and, and I think she was thinking, okay, you know, this is the expert. We're going to go in there. It's going to be cerebral. We're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to dig into this, dig into the labs, look at the trends, you know, figure all this out. And what I told her was, I don't think there's really anything wrong with you per se. I think you are thinking about your health too much. Your grip on your life is too tight what some of your previous providers told you, she had Hashimoto's, about never being able to eat any grains and blah, 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 really indoctrinated her into this very fear-based way of thinking about food mm. and her relationship with health. And I told her, I, what I'd like you to do is relax in the diet a little bit, have some grain, spend some more time with your partner maybe have a glass of wine here or there you know, and loosen up. And and that's all I want you to – and I also got her off like the 20 supplements she was on. Mm. And then come back in a month. And and she was not happy with that advice. It was There was a lot of tension in the room because quite frankly, she was pissed. You know, Her expression was like, what the hell is this? You know, This is what I paid for. Um, but I, I said, just give me the benefit of the doubt that I know what I'm doing and just humor me and try this. She comes back three days later and she said, oh my God, I can't believe how much better I feel. Thank you so much. So sometimes the the solution is not more complicated. It's just realizing that this person you know, may have a really flawed relationship with their body and with food. And that, that's probably the minority of cases, but sometimes, again, it, it looks complicated on the surface, but underneath that, it's actually kind of simple. Yeah, you know that I I have a quote that I like and it's people tend to underappreciate the complexity of our world while simultaneously overcomplicating their time in it. And yeah, it's that's great. It's yeah, it's just kind of a, something a trend I've noticed and I appreciate too cuz things the world is really complicated, but a lot of the times to get from here to there is less complicated than you think. Um so that's 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 interesting too that so we've had another kind of clinical antidote that's been shared on the podcast with a physical injury where somebody was rehabbing a physical injury and they were just having extreme anxiety about it, but they weren't telling the practitioner who was, who in their mind was just responsible for like physical therapy, exercises, manual therapy, that type of stuff. After they built a relationship, um, she kind of just uh, poured out one day all of the anxiety and he was like, oh, okay, wow, um, here's the thing. We're going to work on this now, <laughs> or I'm going to refer you out to somebody who can help you with the anxiety first. And they were also measuring HRV as well, and that was staying inexplicably low for some reason. Uh, got the anxiety addressed, HRV kind of returned to, quote, normal ranges. And then uh, also the physical injury saw much more rapid healing. And again, just a just a clinical anecdote. So I'm not saying everybody everywhere is going to have that experience, but uh, just lets you know what could be possible, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, uh, finally, we we touch on HRV, which is the the topic of the, of the podcast here. But you know, I'm, I'm glad that 
you you brought up HRV, obviously, but there, you know one thing shoots through my head as you're saying that, and I want to make sure to make this distinction for the audience because I, I think this is profoundly important, which is one of the most prominent hidden sources of stress and inflammation in the body, in my opinion, and I think there's a decent body of literature that's starting to support this, is your gut. And so if someone is not sleeping well, and I should also clarify that you can have no gut symptoms, but have a problem in the gut. So you can have gut inflammation that's not manifesting as bloating or constipation as diarrhea, but is only manifesting as joint pain, brain fog, insomnia, fatigue, skin lesions. And, and so it, it's really important to consider very early on in your healthcare journey, optimizing the health of your gut. Uh, me as an example, I had no digestive symptoms, but I had brain fog, insomnia, fatigue, and depression. So my symptoms were pretty much all neurological. So how that may tie into HRV, and I haven't been tracking this in my patients to see how gut health improvements correlate with HRV improvements, but what I can tell you is that we will see people sleep better, have better exercise tolerance, have better energy, have less joint pain, have clearer skin, have better libido, be able to take less thyroid medication routinely by improving their gut health because that is one major hidden source of stress and inflammation. So I, I just want to make sure that the audience is aware of that because it's it's really important to get that right early on because it'll save you from barking up all these other trees that may be not fruitful at all. And so again, you know, keep in mind very early on in your healthcare journey, the health of your gut. That's huge. And it's good timing too. I was going to ask you why, why the big interest in the gut, because you've obviously carved out a space out there in the world for associating your name with gut health. And uh, to me, you know, it's why we've crossed paths a few times, I think, too. Uh, I have a much less deep understanding about it, but it's like if you have gut issues, it's like trying to drive with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas, right? And so if you're able to address the gut and get it functioning properly, which there are people smarter than me that can help you do that, it's like taking that foot off the brake and then you're finally able to use the gas pedal without that brake pedal going. It's kind of how I think about it. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And and again, these things aren't far fetched, uh, you know, kooky left, you know, left wings, ultra progressive ideas. We're we're starting to see this documented in the research literature, the, the gut brain connection. This is why patients with IBS or irritable bowel syndrome have higher scores of fatigue, anxiety, and depression. And some preliminary evidence is showing that probiotics can help improve mood. As one example, there's been some research shown that the treatment of bacterial overgrowths can improve skin conditions like rosacea and neurological conditions like restless leg. Uh, even one trial is showing that a, a gut-friendly liquid diet known as an elemental diet was as effective in quelling the joint pain of rheumatoid arthritis as was prednisone. Um, one study from Italy has shown that the treatment of H. pylori, a gut bacterium, can reduce thyroid autoimmunity 
and there's a decent body of literature now associating small intestinal bacterial overgrowth to hypothyroidism and thyroid autoimmunity. Whether or not that is causal still needs to be worked out. Um, so, I mean, those are just a few that, that come, you know, right to the top of my head because your, your gut is where you have the largest density of immune cells in your entire body. So that sets the tone somewhat globally for inflammation and for immune system activation, potentially having the ability to skew autoimmunity. And it's also where 90% of the small intestine specifically is where 90% of calories are absorbed. And of course, all your nutrients are absorbed. Uh, so it's a, it's a very important place in the body physiologically, not only for allowing you to absorb nutrients, but also for setting the tone of inflammation and your immune system somewhat globally. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's a reason that I've, I put so much emphasis on that. And just basically in the clinic, I, I keep doing more of what works the best. And that just leads me deeper and deeper into the world of gut. And it's not to say that optimizing your gut health is a cure-all. It's not. But I would say out of any line of therapies, that line of therapy will produce the most result for the most part. Right. And that's a function of our environment, basically, right? I mean, if we were to rewind time like a million years, then if you could uh, do surgery in a, in a septic way, antiseptic rather, um, then that might be the thing that helps the most people. But today it happens to be the cut. Sure. Yeah. Great, great example. So that's interesting. And, and I want to uh, touch one more time on thyroid. So the gut thyroid connection is something that people might not know a ton about. And first of all, though, why, why so much interest in the thyroid? Why, why should people be interested in the thyroid? Well, <laughs> it's a tough question because I feel like people are too interested in the thyroid right now um, because it's been, it's been so heavily marketed. I guess that I guess that's what kind of leads me to that question. It's why are people so interested in it? Is kind of I guess what I, was I think thinking. it's very appealing to people. Um, for you know, for whatever reason, people are they they find certain concepts appealing and other concepts not so appealing. Um, so it, it does seem that people are fairly readily able to see the plausibility of someone saying to them, hey, your illness, your symptoms might be a derivative of your thyroid. That seems to be an attractive proposition to people. Um, exactly why, I, I'm not sure. Um, it, it, perhaps it's just because of how it's been marketed that uh, you know this could be the cause of your symptoms and perhaps have an easy answer if, if you're painting the, the predominant answer as thyroid medication. Um, I mean, thyroid does have important function in the body. Of course, it, it controls the metabolic rate of your body at a cellular level. Um, but the real question is, how relevant is that to people, right? Because I can say that, but if that only affects a vast minority of people, then that statement, even though it sounds profound, it affects the metabolic rate of every cell. If it only, if if problems in that mechanism only affect three percent of the population is using an arbitrary number, then even though that mechanism sounds attractive, it's not really that impactful. Um, so the, the, the way I, I look at kind of how these tie in to help give people a, a relative understanding of thyroid and gut and, and their relative importance, it's been suggested and there's there's 
One study that directly, actually, I'm sorry, two studies that have documented an ability to improve thyroid autoimmunity with diet. And, and these were both, you could argue, gut-friendly diets. One was essentially a low FODMAP diet and one was essentially a, a paleo diet. And thyroid autoimmunity is a process where your immune system attacks your thyroid gland, causes damage to the gland, and then eventually you can become hypothyroid. So thyroid autoimmunity is an important underlying cause of hypothyroidism, and that can be improved with diet, also with some nutritional supplements. And there's also evidence, and this is preliminary evidence, showing that various gut treatments may help to decrease thyroid autoimmunity. Where this gets even more interesting is for people who are on medication, so people who are now hypothyroid, but they're not feeling well. And it's it's that class of people that I think is oftentimes the most disserviced on the internet because they're oftentimes told, well, it's because of you're not on the right medication or it's because of your adrenals or it's because of XYZ. And there may be a grain of truth to all those things, but what I would suggest is people first try to improve their gut health because a few things there may happen. One, the reason why someone may be on a thyroid medication and not feeling well is because they're not consistently absorbing the medication through their small intestine, which is where a thyroid medication absorbs. And if you can improve their gut health, you improve their absorption of the hormone, and then they have more stable thyroid hormone levels in their blood and they feel better. And that's been documented in some of the research literature. We've documented that in a number of our patients where they've actually felt better and needed less thyroid medication. Why? We improved their gut health and that led to a host of symptomatic improvements and they were absorbing their medication better. So they actually needed less medication. Um, so that's what I think is one of the important things that sometimes is missed is that by improving your gut health, you may better absorb the medication that you're on and improving your gut health may actually be the cause of some of the symptoms that you're complaining about that you think are driven by the thyroid like fatigue and depression as two examples, both of which have been associated with inflammation in the gut. Um, so they're both important and, and addressing them both is important, but I would say be careful not to go into the most exotic and esoteric thyroid treatments if you haven't taken time to really optimize your gut health. And optimizing your gut health does go beyond just eating a paleo diet and taking a probiotic. You know, there's more to it that, than that. And that's really what my book walks people through, which is a very comprehensive self-help plan to figure out how they should be eating what probiotics they should be using, if they need to do anything else like using antibacterial or antifungal herbs to clean out any overgrowth or, or dysbiosis. So achieving optimal gut health is, is not necessarily always as simple as you know diet and a probiotic, although those are two components of it. Right. Yeah. Shocker that cookie cutter solutions are not uh, available for everyone, right? Um, right. <laughs> not useful to everyone. But uh, no, that's 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 great. I appreciate that. Um, that really helps a lot. And um, you know, as as folks are kind of digesting some of this, and as we're getting closer to wrapping up, uh, you know, we kind of opened with the fact that uh, you're a busy guy. You've got a lot of things going on. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you, uh, how do you divide your time between patients and research? Do you 
have a preference or some structure around that? Or do you just kind of fit things in where they go? Or how does that work for you? But yeah, definitely having a, a clear schedule and, and time management has been really helpful. And also, I mean, the fact that I, I see patients two days a week opens up time, of course, for the reading, the research, the writing, and everything else. So I'm in the clinic two days a week, which is great because that's where I have a chance to interface with people, see what works, see what doesn't work. I mean, for myself, right, my, and my own kind of one-on-one uh, doctor-patient clinical application and also see what is too hard for people because sometimes there are things that on paper look really attractive but then in execution they're much more difficult and so we have to figure out how to modify things and make them workable for people and then on the other days usually the first half of the day i'm either writing or going through the research and then the second half of the day it's usually just servicing all the different kind of administrative and business tasks associated with you know, the the clinic and then the Russo Institute, which you know just odds and ends and business things and 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 what have mm-hmm. you. Um, but the the real beauty of of being able to both be in the clinic and document what we're doing in the clinic and, and draw some of that up for research publication. And then on the other days, staying really abreast of the research and writing about what the research is showing and and training clinicians and also trying to provide educational materials for the the general public. It's a a great marriage because I I would think if if I was just in academics or just in the clinic, you know, that would all be fine and good, but you'd have a little bit of a blind spot. Being able to do both has has been a real gift. And I feel really fortunate to be able to do that because it helps keep me minimal with a blind spot. I mean, we all have blind spots, but I, you know, I try to mitigate those as much as I can. So, um, that's I mean, a kind of rough overview of my schedule. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that helps. I mean, because it's clear that you do spend a lot of time with the research and I, and I'm just curious if folks go to their doctor and they ask, um, how much time they spend doing research, it would probably be a fairly big variety and also depend on the field that their doctor is in, I'm sure. But um, it's, it seems like, uh, in many fields, a lot of the research takes, uh, backseat to, um, the needs of the business in the clinic. Right. So, um, no, yeah. And it's, it's, um, yeah. And, and, you know, in, in, a doctor's or clinician's defense, you know, it's, it's nice to have a doctor who spends a couple of days a week, keeping abreast of the research, but I'm really only able to do that because I've figured out a way to get paid to do that, right? If I'm being really honest, you know, who could take two days a week and work and not get paid for that? Now, that's, that's a, that's a tough ask. Um, so not, you know, not every doctor, you know, has been able to, or is in a situation where, you know, they, they write books or, or they, you know, they, they do training programs where they're able to, essentially make a living off of those days. So, you know, I just, I want to be careful that we don't paint doctors who aren't spending all that time as, as being, you know, um, maybe a bit lazy. It's, it's sometimes it's just, it's tough. It's tough to keep your doors open and you have to be working four to five days a week in the clinic. And that doesn't leave much time or energy left over to be really jumping deep into the research literature. Yeah, that's, that's really important. And I appreciate you 
clarifying that because I honestly, uh, I'm not a doctor or clinician, but I find myself in a similar boat as what you just described is um, running this growing business uh, takes a lot of my time. And in the earlier days, I had more time to spend doing research myself specifically. And over time, my my time is less and less available for that. Um, so I feel like podcasts and things like that, which you have to be careful with, of course, the information that you're getting, it's good to to kind of think critically about it, but um, are helpful tools. And then also kind of finding people that you can rely upon for credible information. And then again, always thinking critically and when you have the time cross-checking and things like that. Yeah. So, well, Mike, um, this has been awesome. Uh, as with any good conversation, time flies. So we're, we're nearing the end here. Um, and I know, like I mentioned at the beginning that you have a lot of free information out there on YouTube, on your website. Uh, you also have your book, which is, uh, very highly rated on Amazon and I'm sure it can be found in other places as well. Where, what's the best place for people to find you? My website, which is drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. You can plug in new or videos and articles there and learn more about the book. And if you're a clinician, you can learn more about our clinician's newsletter and uh, also plug into social media and, and all those other uh, channels. Awesome. And are there any thoughts that you have to leave folks with or uh, we'll wrap up? Yeah, I, I would say just, just a couple things, which is be careful with how hard you are on yourself and how hard you are with yourself regarding how perfect you have to be with your diet. And I know, you know, every, every group's a little bit different. I'm not sure if, if this audience, you know, beats themselves up over diet or not, but that's something I see in the clinic that's fairly prevalent where people feel like if they're trying to do diet X and they deviate just a little bit from that diet, that they're a failure and they have to go back to square one. And it's really kind of this debilitating defeating way of looking at your diet. And, and I would say you don't have to be perfect to reap fairly significant benefits from diet and from lifestyle. So be okay with the fact that you're not perfect and and not uh, and don't beat yourself up over that. And uh, also to not forget the importance of, of your gut health. And, and I get that you know, if you go out there, you're going to read all sorts of things about gut health. Everyone should be gluten-free. Conversely, gluten-free is a fad. Low FODMAP is what you should do. Conversely, low FODMAP is bad for your gut. You should avoid carbs. You should eat high carb. <laughs> you know, you should avoid oxalates. You should avoid histamines. Um, probiotics are good, but they're bad if you have SIBO, but I think it might have SIBO. All right. So I understand how quickly this can get confusing. And that's exactly why I did write Healthy Gut, Healthy You is so that you could have an evidence-based, logical, and practical guide to walk you through all this so that you can improve your health and you don't necessarily have to go to a doctor and, and maybe spend out of pocket money to to improve your health there. Um, and, and by doing those two things, I think for anyone who's kind of struggling with symptoms or conditions, I think you have a really high probability of, of feeling much better. And um, yeah, I would just you know offer that to people as, as hopefully a, a ray of hope in what can sometimes be a, a fairly confusing and intimidating landscape. I appreciate that. I think it helped uh, reinforce it earlier when you said even you who spend a lot of time uh, with the research and in the clinic uh, are often looking for 
telltale signs that are not necessarily so cut and dry, like uh, symptomology and changes in symptomology. So paying attention as you try different things and seeing how it works for you is seems like a, a good thing to do alongside that. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks, Dr. Mike. I really appreciate it. That's drruscio.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And as usual, uh, we'll post the show notes over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. And if you're enjoying the show, you want more folks like Dr. Mike, please go leave us a review over on iTunes. And thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Jason. It was a lot of fun. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit HRVCourse.com to get access today.